0: So we've been walking through different character studies throughout the Old Testament. We've been walking through and looking at and studying fascinating stories of forgotten lives. And now we came to Naaman. We come to Naaman, the foreigner who was healed by the Lord of hosts. Naaman, the foreigner who was healed by the Lord of hosts. And as we talk about this passage, I want to remind you, as I announced last week and I'll announce it today, that I've changed the sermon notes format. So if you pick those up. Uh, just remember that I'm trying to keep it to one page front and back, just kind of a brief summary of the notes, not as detailed and as exhaustive. If you do want the full, complete notes, you can contact the church on Monday, or maybe let me know ahead of time. But if any of you, if you're online, they are on my blog by Sunday afternoon, and there's information about that in your bulletin. But many times, the notes do change a little bit from how the sermon develops. In a day, is that case. Sometimes, you know, I develop my sermons in advance. I'm highly type A that way. And so if you think of pastors, uh, and some are this way, cramming Saturday, trying to get their sermons done, I would be crazy if I was doing that. Sometimes I make changes Saturday, but usually they're done in advance. And usually I'll put things in the manuscript, and then as I'm looking it over the week before, I think, Ooh, I don't know that I wanna share that. And so today is the case, you know, if you do look at the, the notes you have should be pretty, pretty correct, cause it's just a brief summary. But if you look at the notes later that are online, they might be a little different. So we're in 2 Kings chapter five. You know, how, how great is our faith? How great is our faith in our product? Uh, if you're a salesman, do you have faith and trust and confidence that what you're selling is something that is really, really important, that people need it? So I was selling life insurance for a while and I would listen to all these podcasts about selling life insurance and the owners of the life insurance company gave this illustration they had somebody he was selling life insurance and he would make a few sales and then he wouldn't do so well then he would do good again and then not so well and they, they sat the guy down there talking to him about his his sales and they, the guy said well you know I don't even believe in life insurance and so they had to say you probably should look for another job. If you don't believe in it, you're likely not going to be able to promote it and sell it. Robert Chesabra believed in his product. He's the fellow invented he's the fellow who invented Vaseline, a petroleum jelly refined from road wax, I'm sorry, rod wax, the ooze that forms on shafts of oil rigs. This man so believed in the healing properties of his product that he became his own guinea pig. He burned himself with acid and flame. He cut and scratched himself so often and so deeply that he bore the scars of his tests the rest of his life. But he proved his product worked. People had only to look at his wounds now healed to see the value of his work and the extent of his belief. That man had total faith in his product. So much faith that he was willing to burn himself, scratch himself, to test it. We're going to look at a passage dealing with faith. We're going to look at a man who had had to trust that he could be healed by a prophet of God. And he had to trust that he could be healed by Elisha. And he was healed. And more than that, he wasn't even a Jewish man. He wasn't even an Israelite. He was a commander of an army who God used to actually be an enemy of Israel. So Uh, Caitlin and Ryan just fabulously read the passage, so I'm not going to reread it. They did very well, and hopefully you followed along, but keep your Bibles open as we look at this. We're going to kind of walk right through this passage right now. In verse 1 of this passage, we see Naaman's disease, Naaman's disease. Naaman is introduced in the first verse, and Naaman is the captain of the army of the king of Aram. Naaman is a very high court official, as we will see in a little bit. Naaman is, you know, the, the four-star general of the King of Aram. Naaman is, you know, the General Patton or the General Schwarzkopf or General MacArthur of the King of Aram. Maybe he, he could even be even a little bit higher than that. Maybe the Secretary of Defense or something like that. About Aram, some of you might be wondering, well, where in the world is Aram? You know, what... What is this little little nation? Who are they? Why, why is 2 Kings chapter 5 talking about Aram? But in reality, if you read through 1 and 2 Kings, you will see Aram repeatedly, time and time again, as a foe of the northern kingdom. About Aram, I read the following. The land of Aram, north of the land of Israel, was known by the Greeks as Syria. Syria. Current evidence suggests that the Arameans inhabited the upper Euphrates throughout the second millennium. That would be um, the second millennium. First as villagers and pastoralists, then as a political national coalition. During this period, here's a key point during this period, they are alternately allies and the most troublesome foes of the northern kingdom of Israel. So the Arameans would be allies of the northern kingdom for a time. And then they would be foes. (laughs) They would be allies when it made sense. You know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. And then they would be foes at other points and enemies. So here's this guy Naaman. And Naaman is a great man. He's highly respected. Interesting, though, if you look at verse 1, it says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because, look at this, it says, Because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. By Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The Lord gave the victory, but he's not even a Jewish person, and he's not even fighting for Israel, yet the Lord gave victory. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God would use non-Jewish countries, pagan countries, to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes God's purpose was to defeat Israel, because Israel had turned on God. Israel had turned their backs on God and God would use later on King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to defeat Judah in five eighty-six BC. Long before that, in seven twenty-two BC, God would use, um, God would use I just lost the term Babylon now. Yeah. Assyria, sorry, Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. I usually do know that stuff. Assyria in 722 B.C. to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. God uses non-Jewish countries, non-Jewish nation states to accomplish his purpose. And what we see throughout the Bible, and this is true of today too, is that God is sovereign and God is in control. There are many times when we think God is not in control. How can God use somebody or something or some leader? And God is still in control. Do do not fret do not worry and so God is using Naaman and God has used Naaman to give many victories to Aram. so Naaman is a valiant warrior but he is a leper and that is a, ma- a major major contrast to have leprosy as a Jewish people groups meant that you are a social outcast you are unclean now it is a little bit different here with Naaman because though he has leprosy He is still serving the king of Aram. He is still serving, and he's still allowed to do that. But leprosy just means, or leper, just means that he has skin disease. And that skin disease can take many forms. Some people try to apply it to what we might call Hansen's disease today. You could look it up on, on the internet later or something, Hansen's disease. But we don't know if it is the exact same skin disease. It is just a type of skin disease. So Naaman, here's his Naaman, and Naaman is a valiant warrior, a mighty warrior. He's a mighty man, but he has leprosy. And we're going to see him get healed. In Luke 4.27, Jesus references this account. In Luke 4.27, Jesus says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman. The Syrian. And again, Syria would be Aram. He's the only one that Jesus referenced it, references as cleansed during the time of Elisha. So looking at verses 2 through 5, we see Naaman's determination. So Naaman has been introduced in verse 1, and now we're going to see Naaman's determination. Verse 2 is actually quite sad to me. If I really read verse 2 and really think about it, it's quite sad. Verse 2 says, now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl. From the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were, the, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria. The prophet. That's Elijah. And this little girl says, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now that's quite sad. I mean... I've read this story a number of times, I gloss over it many times, but having two little girls at home, this is quite sad. There's a little girl, she's been taken captive during a raid. This was an Aramaean an, an raid on probably Israel. And my heart breaks when I read this. You know, I think of my daughters being taken captive. That's really what happened here. A little girl, don't know how old, I would guess, uh, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old at the oldest, I would think, because she's described as a little girl. And the Arameas go on these raids, and they capture her as a prisoner of war. And in addition to being taken captive, they make her a prisoner. In addition to being a prisoner, which would be a captive, of course, they make her a servant. They make her a slave at a young age she's forced to be a slave. Unfortunately, by the way, we need to pray about this because it still happens today. It even happens across the U.S. through sex trafficking, which is on the rise, and we need to keep that in prayer and try to help um, and support freeing them as much as we can. So this little girl is a servant of Naaman. She's a servant, not a willing servant. She's a slave because she was taken captive. And in verse 3, she talks to her mistress. It seems like her mistress is the wife of Naaman. And she tells him, she tells her mistress, if only Naaman could see the prophet from Samaria the prophet Elijah now here's what's interesting to me as well you would think that she's captured as a slave you would think that when she sees Naaman with leprosy she would think serves you right (laughs) you're Israel's enemy you took me as a slave serves you right but she doesn't think that way she actually though she is a slave she actually wants him to be healed Now that's really interesting to me. Here's a slave of a pagan, non-Jewish nation trying to help this person. And she's not just trying to help anyone. She's trying to help the general. She's trying to help the person who led the Arameans to conquer Israel, or at least conquer parts of Israel. This is amazing. So as I look at this passage, I think, is it Stockholm Syndrome? Many of you might know Stockholm Syndrome. It means that a captor, a captive it, it begins identifying with the captors, those who, who has taken that person as a captive. It's a Stockholm Syndrome. Then another part of me thinks, well maybe, maybe she's just being a really good and kind and loving person. And hopefully, and, and maybe they treated her well. And hopefully it's the latter. Hopefully Naaman and his wife and his people and the Arameans treated her very, very well. And so she wanted to help them. It seems as though she may be like Daniel, Mordecai, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and others who would be exiled but would be good servants to their pagan country. We see this. If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see Daniel. Daniel and his, and his companions are taken captive by Babylon at a very young age, but they become very good citizens. We see Mordecai in the book of Esther, who still is very good to Persia. We see Nehemiah and others and Ezra, who are in pagan, non-Jewish nations, and they're still being good to their country. And we see this little servant girl... Taken captive, still seeking the good and the welfare of Naaman. In verse 4, Naaman goes in to tell his master what the girl said. Now we have to ask, who is Naaman's master? And if you look at the context, it seems like Naaman goes in and he talks to the king of Aram. He talks to the king of Aram. And he tells the king of Aram, hey, you know, I got this little girl, you know, she's my servant who we captured, you know, because we captured her family. And this little girl, and Naaman's telling the local king, this little girl says, I could be healed of my leprosy if I go to Israel. So Naaman's master, local, probably the local king of Israel sends a message and he sends a message to the king of Israel so you have one local king sending another local king this message and and he's basically sending a message saying I'm sending Naaman and I'm sending him with this letter and I want you to ask your prophet Elijah to heal this man Naaman who is my military commander of his leprosy now by the way think of this from a 50,000 foot view If Naaman is really the commander of the armies of Aram, and if the Arameans are really a foe of Israel, do you think Israel really wants to help heal the general of their armies? I wouldn't think so. Now, maybe they're being allies right now. We don't know. But by the way, the message that the king of Aram sends also sends ten—they also send money. Get this. 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothes. This equals, by today's buying power, it would be in the vicinity of three quarters of a billion dollars. The king of Aram sends this message with Naaman to the king of Israel along with three quarters of a billion dollars. That's just a little bit of money to help you know, persuade them to heal him. So that's verses 3 through 5. In verses 6 through 8, we see Naaman's determination and the king of Aram's message, the king of Israel. And we also see Elijah's response. So the king of Israel receives the letter. And the letter is coming, but so is Naaman. The king of Israel receives the letter along with Naaman. And verse 7 shows that the king of Israel reacted in outrage. As you look at the passage, the king of Israel reacts in outrage. He tears his clothes, which is a sign of grief or mourning. He reacts in outrage. He's like, why does he think I can heal his military commander? And as I look at this, I actually think that the king of Israel thought that this was a challenge. And even a threat. I actually think that the king of Israel got this message and thought it was a setup. The king of Israel got this message and thought, he's testing me. And if I can't heal him, he's going to use it as collateral against our country to go to war with us. But there's a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more than that. The king of Aram probably thought the king of Israel could control his prophets. In a lot of the other countries, the local king controlled the prophets. If there was a prophet, they had to do what the king said. It wasn't that way in Israel. In Israel, the prophets were free agents. In actuality, the prophets of Israel were actually usually prophesying against their kings. Elijah would prophesy against the king. You know, many of them were prophesying against their kings. In verse 8, Elijah hears about this. Elijah pretty much acts like this. Elijah is like, why did you tear your clothes? Why why not send them to me? Elijah says, send them to me and let them know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elijah is pretty much saying, they may not have prophets in Aram, but we have prophets in Israel. Send them to me. I can take care of this. Or rather, God will take care of this through me. Verses 9-13, through Naaman and Elijah meet each other finally. And Naaman is healed. Notice that Naaman comes to Elijah. And Naaman comes to Elijah with horses and chariots. He comes right up to Elijah's doorway. This huge entourage, you know, all this gold and silver, all these gifts. And he comes right up to Elijah's doorway. Elijah was ready. Elijah gives him a simple message. This is a simple message that Elijah gives him. Elijah says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh will be restored. And you will be clean. That's all he has to do. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And you'll be clean. You would think Naaman would do it. You know, Naaman wants to be healed. He's gone through all this trouble to come to the king of Israel and now come to Elisha. And he has a very, very simple way to be clean. Just take seven baths in the Jordan River. That's all he's got to do. But Naaman is upset. Naaman is not just upset. Naaman is furious. Naman Naaman wanted something dramatic he didn't want a simple healing he wanted something awesome and, and that's cause for application do we want instant gratification it seems that Naaman wanted things in McDonald's way It seems likely that Naaman is advanced in the military, and he was used to having things his way, and he's used to commanding people, and they do as he says. He wanted the dramatic, he wanted the special effects, he wanted it it instantaneously, he wanted it his way. It does not work that way in God's kingdom. It has not worked that way in God's kingdom. We need to pray, and we need to seek the Lord, and we must submit to and surrender to the Lord. Many times the Lord does not answer how we want Him to answer, does He? Most of you have already experienced that. Isaiah 55 teaches that the Lord does not think the way we think. And I am really glad that He does not think the way He thinks. I, think. I am really glad that He does not think the way I think. He's omniscient. That means he knows everything. He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere, including outside of time. The Lord always has a better way than I have. And in this case, the Lord had a better way than Naaman had. And Naaman is furious. He wanted it his way. But God had a plan. Naaman continues in verse 12. Naaman basically asks, why why can't the rivers of Damascus do? Now what you and I don't know without researching is that the the river Jordan was a more muddy river. The rivers of Damascus were clean. And so Naaman's kind of saying, why can't I just go wash in the rivers of Damascus? They're clean. Why do I have to, to wash in the muddy Jordan? Why the Jordan River? And Naaman goes away in a rage. Chuck's all shares Naaman was furious. Of the six primary Hebrew words referring to anger, this is perhaps the strongest. It's the strongest Hebrew word for anger. It usually describes God's righteous wrath towards sin. Interesting. The author of 2 Kings used the word that describes God's righteous wrath towards sin to describe Naaman's fury, Naaman's anger. Naaman was angry because his encounter with God met with none of his personal expectations. And that still happens today, doesn't it? Our encounters with God do not meet our personal expectations. How do we react when things do not turn out our way? Do we go away in a rage? Do we go away in tears? How do we handle disappointment? Listen to some other scriptures. Proverbs 14, 17 says this. A person who has a quick temper does foolish things and a person with crafty schemes is hated. A person who has a quick temper does foolish things. Listen to Proverbs 16:32. This is interesting. Better to be slow to anger than to be a mighty warrior. And one who controls his temper is better than one who captures a city. You hear that? It's better to be slow to anger than even to be a mighty warrior. And it's even better to control your temper than to be somebody who captures a city. We have to control our anger. We have to control our rage. We have to control our fury. Proverbs 19.11 A person's wisdom makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. In verse 13, as we finish this passage, in verse 13... The servants come to Naaman. They talk to him respectfully. They call him father. And they say, if he would have given you something mighty to do, something major to do, wouldn't you have done it? This is simple. Why not try it? So Naaman does it. Naaman goes and he washes in the Jordan seven times. And he is healed of his leprosy. He is made completely well. it says his flesh became like the flesh of a baby. He was perfect, total, complete healing. Here's the funny thing. Naaman came close to not being healed because it was too simple. Naaman came close to not being healed because it was too simple. And that happens today. It happens to all of us. God has a plan and we may think it's too simple. I'm not going to do it. We don't try it. That can't be God's will. It's too simple. Maybe it is God's will. Why do we think it has to be complicated? Do you realize that the gospel is free and simple? And many people may miss out on salvation in Jesus by faith, by grace, because it's just too simple. Sometimes I believe more people would accept and believe in Jesus and follow Jesus if there was a charge. My dad's in sales and he'll say, you're in sales too, just what you sell is free. And, and again, sometimes I think maybe we ought to charge. Maybe people would think it's more valuable. The gospel is more valuable because you can't trust anything if it's free. Nothing's free in life, right? The gospel is free. It's simple. Our God's message of eternal life through Jesus is simple and it's a free message and we need to trust in him as Lord and Savior and follow him. So Naaman obeys Elijah and he's healed. He's completely healed. Here's a few more applications. Only when we acknowledge our own sin sick state will we seek cleansing. We have to acknowledge our sin-sick state. Sin-sick state. That's hard to say. And then we will seek cleansing. We as Christians must understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior and our spiritual healing is free. Our spiritual healing is simple too. Only when we hear the truth will we discover the path to cleansing. We need to hear the truth just like Naaman did. The truth is in the gospel and the truth is in the word of God. Only when we do as God requires Will we receive his cleansing? Are we being obedient to God? Are we doing as God requires? Some of us may be wanting God's help, but we are still living in the flesh. We're still living in sin. We haven't surrendered to him. We have to be willing to surrender and do what God requires. Are you surrendered to the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord? And the final application is something I mentioned, Naaman's rage. In verses 11-12, through 12, we must watch our anger and get rid of it. Get rid of anger. I think there are certain sins that we just kind of tolerate as long as we keep them contained, and that's just not right. We tolerate anxiety as long as we keep it in a certain limit. We tolerate greed as long as it's in a certain limit. We tolerate gossip as long as it's in a certain limit. And we tolerate anger. But the Bible teaches the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We need to get help with anger. We need to get help before it becomes rage, and before it becomes dangerous. Now, how do we get help? We seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. We pray about things. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in all situations, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Instead of being angry, pray write in a journal I recommend that to everyone and sometimes occasionally I do that myself and it's very helpful write your thoughts out write, write, write like you're writing a prayer to God go to Celebrate Recovery they, they can help you with that seek counseling talk to me I believe I could help you with that and we could pray about it together we could unite to help you with your anger your rage or maybe it's something else don't just brush these types of things under the rug get help The powerful pleading words of a Scottish preacher provide a fitting conclusion. This Scottish preacher wrote this. I advise you to get over your temper and to try that very way that you have up till now been so hot and so loud against. It will humble you to do it. And you are not a humble man. But if you ever come back from Jordan with your flesh like the flesh of a little child, you'll be the foremost to confess that you had almost been lost through your pride and your prejudice and your ill nature. You all know, surely, what the true leprosy is. The true leprosy is. You all know what the leprosy of your own soul is. It is sin. Yes, it is sin. It is yourself. O leper, leper, go out with thy loathsome and deadly heart. Go wash in Jordan. Go in God's name. Go in God's strength. Go in God's pity and patience and mercy. Go this very moment. I'm going to pray in a moment, but first I want to read some background to our closing hymn, which is I Need The Every Hour. Psalm 86.7 says, In the day of my trouble I will call to you, for you will answer me. This is about the hymn, I Need The Every Hour, which we're going to sing in a moment. This deeply personal hymn came from the heart of a busy housewife and mother who had no idea of the spiritual strength that her own hastily written words would bring her later during a sorrowful time in her life. The author, Anne S. Hawkes, has left this account about the writing of her poem in 1872. One day as a young wife, she writes this, One day as a young wife and mother of 37 years of age, I was busy with my regular household tasks. Suddenly I became filled with a sense of nearness to the master, and I began to wonder how anyone could ever live without him, either in joy or pain. Then the words were ushered into my mind, And these thoughts took full possession of me. 16 years later, Mrs. Hawks experienced the death of her husband. Years after, she wrote this. I did not understand at first why this hymn had touched the great throbbing heart of humanity. It was not until long after when the shadow fell over my way, the shadow of a great loss, that I understood something of the comforting power in the words which I had been permitted to give out to others in my hour of sweet serenity and peace. One of the blessings of a victorious Christian life is knowing the closeness of our Lord in every circumstance of life. Like Annie Hawks, it is so important that we develop strong spiritual lives during the peaceful hours in order that we will be able to be victorious. When difficulties come, which they surely will to everyone at some time. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour, enjoy your pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee every hour, teach me thy will. And thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee every hour, most holy one. Oh, make me thine, indeed, thou blessed son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need you, and we do really need you every hour, whether we realize it or not. Lord God, help us trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Help us increasing our faith such as you increased the faith of Naaman and healed him. Lord God, help us surrendering to you, surrendering to you our hurts, habits, and hang-ups in everything that we face. Help us confessing, Lord, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and you are the one and only Savior. Lord God, help us believing in you and trusting in you and committing to you. Lord God, I would ask that you help us organizing our affairs around you. We do need you every hour. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, As Steve begins his closing hymn, just a reminder, the altars are open during the closing hymn and actually all the time. And if something has stirred your heart and you want to come forward for prayer, if you come forward to this altar on your right, we will leave you alone. You can just pray alone by yourself. If you come forward to this altar on your left, maybe you want somebody to come up and pray with you, somebody you're sitting next to or a friend or a family member, come up to the altar on your left. Or if you come up by yourself to the altar on your left, one of our elders or other church leaders will come up and pray with you.